Please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look today at verses 1 to 12. A quick reminder of where we've been. Uh, Basically, uh, Jesus is not really a character yet uh, in the story. We have been looking at the genealogy of Jesus. We've looked at uh, his birth. But up till now, Jesus has still been a child. He's still under the care of his parents. We are transitioning now as we head into chapter 3. Uh, And we're going to meet Jesus, uh, not this week, uh, but next week. He will enter the story as he begins his ministry. But today we're going to look at the guy who is before Jesus, a guy named John the Baptist. So this is uh, God's word for us today. This is Matthew 3, verses 1 to 12. This is a portion of the truest story that's ever been told. Listen to this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Yum. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as thy father. As our Father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word for us this morning. Meet John the Baptist, the unruly, unkempt, and fiery preacher of the good news. John occupies a unique position in the history of salvation. John is the last Old Testament prophet. You see, the Old Testament had this expectation, we read about it earlier in the service in Isaiah 40, that there would be a a next to last man. There would be a guy who came before the guy who was going to redeem and save the world. That's John. John is the next to last man. He is the new Elijah who was expected, and we see that in passages like Malachi chapter 4. 
In fact, if you look at John's outfit, he even dresses like Elijah. Uh, you see Elijah's clothes described in 2 Kings 1.8. And John had a very special job to do. His job was to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah was the Savior, the one who would redeem God's people from sin and death and their effects. John's job was to get people ready for the Messiah to come. You see it in Luke 1, especially verses 16 and 17. And as we meet John, he is doing just that. He's out in the wilderness and he is preaching a message. You see it in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And verses 5 and 6 tell us that John is making quite a splash. All of the people of Jerusalem and the region of Judea are coming out to him in the wilderness. They are coming under conviction of sin. They are confessing their sins and they are being baptized by John in the Jordan River. They are being washed by him. And as a side note, this washing that John is doing is not Christian baptism. And if you want to talk more about that, come to the sermon discussion uh, after this. But this is not Christian baptism. What John is doing is he is washing people and symbolizing their need to be cleansed from sin and, and how they are being ready now for the Messiah to come. They are being set apart by this washing in preparation for the arrival of the Savior. However, verse 7 tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees enter the scene. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious elites of the day, although they were elite in different ways. Uh, So the Pharisees were a group that believed if God's people would just be holy, if they would just do the right stuff, then God would intervene. He would overthrow the Romans who were occupying Israel, and he would restore Israel to greatness. And so one of the ways the Pharisees decided they were going to help God's people be holy is they took God's law and they built a hedge around it so that people wouldn't even get close to sinning. People wouldn't even get close to violating the law. So if God's law says, for instance, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, the Pharisees said, hey, you're not allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. You can't even get close to maybe failing to remember the Sabbath. They wanted God's people to be holy. The Sadducees didn't care so much about holiness. That wasn't really their thing. The Sadducees were the priests that were in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. And they were in the room where it happened. They were close to the centers of power. They were collaborators with the Roman government. And they had influence and power and status. Here's what's important. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They each thought that the other was the thing that was wrong with the country. But they had one thing in common. And the thing they had in common is that they both liked the place that they had. 
in the way of things. They both liked their their role, their position. The Pharisees were kind of thought leaders and, and people looked at them and were sort of impressed with their holiness. And the Sadducees just liked power and influence and accomplishment. They were both pretty excited about the role that they were playing in the world as it was. And so they show up to John's baptism for bad reasons. The Pharisees, you can imagine, are there because they like the idea that sinners are saying that they're bad and need to be better. So they're going to kind of watch that happen. It's just enjoyable to see people that are worse than you admit that they're worse than you. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are there probably to make sure that there's not a rebellion about to start. Because a rebellion is really going to upset their plans for more power, influence, and comfort. Neither group... Neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees are there for the kingdom. Neither group is there because they are convicted of sin. Neither group is there because they have any sense that they need to change anything about themselves or that they need to repent. They are there as elites. And John sees them. And John preaches to them. John offers them... No special privilege. John doesn't defer to their elite status. John starts his sermon pretty gently. You snakes! Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you even here? You want to be part of the kingdom? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But stop assuming that you're already in because of your behavior or your position. God can raise up people like that from rocks. God is about to chop down trees that don't bear fruit. And more than that, one even bigger than me is coming. And he will baptize the repentant now with the Holy Spirit or the unrepentant later with fire. And John looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, which one are you? Repentant or unrepentant? Man, there's a lot there. I think there are three things we can distill out of this story that helps us understand some of what is going on here. And here's the first thing. I gave you these in your bulletin as well. First thing is simply this. The gospel begins as bad news. The gospel begins as bad news. It begins as a word against us. Look at John's sermon. You see it in verses 2 and in verse 8. And in both places, the heart of the news he's preaching is repent, which assumes something. We need to repent. We are sinners. And so here's what I want to do. Briefly this morning, I want to think about sin and I want to think about repentance as we're thinking about how the gospel begins as bad news. Uh, In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, again, uh, one of the documents that summarizes what our church believes the Bible teaches, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, In other words, sin is not doing the things God says to do or doing the things God says not to do. That's absolutely true. But I think that can be a little inaccessible for our daily experiences. So let's think about sin maybe some other ways as well. 
One of the most profound definitions of sin I've seen in recent years uh, is an author who says, sin means that we not only mess up, but we mess things up. We not only mess up, we mess things up, which means sin is not just some violation of something random that God has said not to do, but sin is the fact that we hurt people. We break things. Friends, sin has only the capacity to destroy. Sin brings no life. Sin brings no joy. Sin brings no flourishing. It can only destroy the good things that God has already made. The great uh, Russian freedom fighter uh, and author Alexander Solzhenitsyn captures this beautifully. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary for us only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? G.K. Chesterton, another great author, he was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors, one time responded to an essay prompt asking, what's wrong with the world with the simple words, I am. Friends, sin is in all of our hearts. We not only mess up, we mess things up. And so the gospel begins as the bad news that we are what is wrong with the world. We are the problem. We are what is wrong with the world. So what is our response to that? We see it in John's sermon. Our response to sin is repentance. My favorite definition of repentance comes from J.I. Packer. I actually gave it to you in the worship service last week. You're going to hear this from me a thousand times. Uh, So get used to it. Packer says this, Repentance means turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of my God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of my God. Repentance means then not minimizing, not excusing, not hedging, but fully confessing to God the sin that is in our hearts. Repentance is something that is lifelong and ongoing in our lives. We never outgrow Repentance, because we always have room to see our sin more clearly, to understand our own hearts more clearly, and to understand God's character and holiness more clearly. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, God has assigned to every believer a race of repentance which they are to run throughout their entire lives. Friends, repentance is where we start in the kingdom of heaven. And repentance is where we continue in the kingdom of heaven. We live and breathe repentance. 
And what I want you to see is that as I insist on this life of repentance, I'm not calling us to a life of kind of self-loathing or a life of self-flagellating. And and repentance is not meant to be something scary in the lives of God's people. It's not meant to be scary for us to have messed up or to have messed things up. Friends, it is assumed that we are going to do this. And so repentance isn't scary because repentance is how we turn away from the thing that destroys and embrace the thing that gives us freedom and flourishing. Repentance is ending our addiction to sin and to self. I think you could say the entirety of the Christian life is faith and repentance and obedience. And so friends, the gospel wounds us before it heals us. The gospel starts as bad news before it becomes good news. Or to paraphrase a a recent popular TV show, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you angry. And that's where we are. The gospel begins as bad news. It takes us to our second takeaway for this morning. It is our strengths, not our weaknesses, where our hearts are most resistant to the gospel. It is our strengths and not our weaknesses where our hearts are most resistant to the gospel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees illustrate this for us with almost perfect clarity. One of my favorite uh, recent books uh, has been a book called Seculosity. Uh, And in Seculosity, the author, a guy named David Zoll, says that religion is really about where you go to feel like you are enough. Religion is where you find your enoughness. Where is it that you go to feel like you are enough? Where do you find security? And he would say, it's where you find it actually, not where you say you find it. You know, we might say that we find our security and the identity that God has purchased for us in Christ, but actually find it in our work or in our bank accounts or in a thousand other places. You see, the Sadducees, they clearly found their sense of enoughness in their power, in their influence, in their accomplishments. They illustrate for us a worldly way to resist the gospel. Uh, In that book, Seculosity, uh, he talks about the idol of busyness in our lives and how if you ask anybody on any given day how they're going to do, there's an 80% chance they're going to tell you they are busy. He said we are terrified to not be busy, not because we love being busy because every study suggests that we are miserable because we're busy, but because we're scared of what it would mean if we're not busy. We're scared that it might mean that we're not actually needed or important or significant. Many of us find our significance, we find our enoughness in our busyness, in our work. The Pharisees, though, illustrate something slightly different. They illustrate for us finding enoughness in morality or behavior, a religious way to resist 
the gospel. A friend of mine who's a pastor talked about uh, in college, he was part of a ministry and he was being discipled by one of the staff workers for this ministry. And the staff worker walked him into the student union. And there were several people reading their Bibles kind of around in the, in the student union. And he turned to my friend and he said, a lot of these Christians out here are four-cylinder Christians. But if you stick with me, I can make you an eight-cylinder Christian. I can make you better than these other people. I can make you more important, more significant, more holy, more missional than these people here. A religious way to resist the heart of the gospel, finding our enoughness in our religious behavior. And friends, truth be told, whichever of these ways of resisting the gospel seems less dangerous to you, that's probably the one you are falling into. Uh, It's probably the one that you are tempted towards. But this is why this passage is so helpful for us. Because wherever we are finding enoughness apart from God's grace, John the Baptist's words have to cut us to the very soul. John is saying to us, God can raise up busy and successful people with interesting jobs and lives from Virginia Clay. God can raise up people that have quiet times and tithe and go to church and volunteer from the rocks. And friends, if you are looking there for your enoughness, it's never going to be enough. You see, friends, in the kingdom... Our strengths are actually liabilities. And they're liabilities because they mask our true need. You see, friends, the gospel is not that we are slow and need to be made just a little faster. The gospel's not that we are just weak and need to be a little stronger. It's not that we mess up sometimes and just need to get a little better. The gospel is that we are dead and need to be made alive. Our need is profound in the gospel. And that takes us to our third takeaway for this morning. And it's the good news. The good news about this gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is only for sinners. The kingdom of heaven is only for sinners. John the Baptist's sermon is uncomfortable. I hope you felt that as we read it together. Uh, In fact, if I was teaching someone how to preach, I would basically say, don't do this. Don't start yelling at people. However, whenever the Bible makes us uncomfortable, that's a really good indication that we actually need to listen at that point. And what the Bible is saying to us this morning is consider the kingdom. Consider the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Consider this kingdom built on the assumption that we are what is wrong with the world. Because what John is saying in big, bold letters, underlined and with exclamation points, is that the kingdom is not for righteous, moral, important people. The kingdom is not for people without sin. 
The kingdom is not for self-sufficient people that have no need of it. And the kingdom is not for people who are pretending at holiness or who are deluded as to the fact that they think they've achieved it. There is no one who self-qualifies for the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom is only for sinners. To get into the kingdom, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. And the good news of the gospel for us this morning is that the job of the next to last man is to prepare for the last and greatest man. John mentions him briefly in verses 11 and 12, the man who is coming next, who will baptize the repentant now with the Holy Spirit or the unrepentant later with fire. But friends, before fire, that last and greatest man secures the entrance of sinners into his kingdom at the cost of his own flesh and blood. Friends, that's what the cross is. On the cross, Jesus sets us free from sin and its effects. And in the empty tomb, in his resurrection, Jesus sets us free from death eternally. All we need is nothing. All we need is need because all we have is Christ. Martin Luther put this so profoundly. He says, friends, at the end of the day, God accepts no one except the abandoned. He makes no one healthy except the sick. He gives no one sight except the blind. He brings no one to life except the dead and makes no one holy except for sinners. And he does all of that because of Jesus. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess this morning that we don't like to think of ourselves as what is wrong with the world. We don't like to think of the sin in our hearts and our lives as something other than just a secret indulgence. Father, we are reminded again and again by John's words that sin only destroys And that freedom and happiness and flourishing only come when we turn away from it because we have been set free from it in Christ. Father, show us the temptations of our hearts. Show us the places we seek enoughness apart from your grace and goodness. Whether that be in our worldly standing or in our religious behavior. Unmask the idols of our hearts that we might relinquish them and turn again and again to Christ in faith and repentance and to obedience. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us and through us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us in the reality of Christ's work on our behalf and to make us holy, to make us pictures of your grace and goodness. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.